My name is Dr. Barbara Jones Warren. I happen to be a clinician myself, psychiatric mental health nurse clinician, and I'm also the director of the NP program at The Ohio State University. I'm so glad today to be able to welcome you to this podcast. We're going to be talking about adults living with schizophrenia and what that entails. This podcast is indeed sponsored by Janssen Pharmaceuticals. And Dr. Yamas, who is going to be with us, has been paid an honorarium for his uh, work and part on this. So without further ado, I'd really like to have Dr. Yamas uh, introduce himself. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Warren, for having me here on this podcast. It's truly an honor and a privilege to be able to work with you and, and kind of share my experience uh, working as a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner uh, in today's society. So a little bit about myself. Again, my name is Dr. Jonathan Yamis, and I'm a board-certified psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. I've been a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner now for the past three years. I've been a registered nurse for the past six years. And during my time working as a bedside psychiatric nurse, I was really inspired to pursue my graduate level education after working with such amazing doctors and nurses and other nurse practitioners. So in 2015, I was compelled and uh, I went ahead and pursued my doctor of nursing practice at Loma Linda University. And since then, I've been working primarily as a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner for a outpatient private practice right now, typically in a telemedicine capacity. Thank you. Could you say a little bit more about your collaborative work within the practice itself? And what is your approach to caring for individuals who are diagnosed with schizophrenia? A good patient-provider relationship is deeply rooted in good communication, transparency, mutual respect, and teamwork. So in regards to being able to care specifically for the schizophrenia community, we want to make sure that you know, honesty is the best policy, right? You want them to feel that they are feeling supported and that I am actually being an active listener and I am actually um, hearing out whatever their concerns may be. So in regards to my approach there, um, once I'm able to foster that relationship and build upon that um, foundation of trust, it's easier for, for me to successfully coordinate and decide uh, what type of treatment approach uh, we would like to work on together. Again, uh, for me as a provider, I really have a deep pride in working closely with my patients. I know right now in today's society, it's very difficult because there's a lot of patients who need our help. However, there's just not a lot of us providers to go around. Um, but for me, anyway, the, in terms of seeing the most uh, benefit and seeing the, the most um, positive outcomes is when I do take that extra five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever the case may be, to really get to know and understand the patient's situation. I think once I have that understanding, um, again, it's easier for us to to work collaboratively together and strategically decide uh, what they feel the most comfortable with, um, because having that buy-in is, is crucial, I think, instead of us just dictating what kind of treatment they want. Um, when I have their buy-in and when I, when I feel that they are comfortable in the treatment that they decide, um, it's a win-win situation for the both of us. Thank you so much for talking about that trust and the importance of building that in uh, your practice environment. I, I'd also like to ask you a little bit more about how do you offer um, culturally inclusive 
uh, care and approaches, since that is such an important thing in uh, our work right now, the diversity, the equity, and inclusion. I'd like to hear your comments about how do you foster that within your own practice and in working with others. Well, like you mentioned, I think culturally inclusive care is so important when working specifically with the mental health population. And for me as a provider, um, it really starts by making sure that um, we are honoring the little things because in my opinion, it's the little things that ultimately make the biggest impact. So when it comes to providing culturally inclusive care, um, it really starts by establishing a really good, a strong patient-provider relationship that is deeply rooted, again, in trust and honesty. So for example of this, when I do speak with my patients, whether it's 15 minutes, 30 minutes, or an hour, I like to start off by asking them how they would like to be addressed, right? Um, in terms of just their name, because oftentimes, I mean, even just having uh, that understanding or, or just making sure that you are showing those little details, um, it makes the patients feel like you are interested in getting to know them and not just their diagnosis, right? And simple things as well, such as asking them their pronouns, how they identify themselves. All those things, in, in my opinion, um, really makes up um, a lot of how a person um, identifies themselves. And in terms of culturally inclusive care, also asking them if, if there's anything in regards to their culture that they would like me to respect. Right. One of the great things about uh, being taught under the nursing model is having that, again, that holistic type of approach and mentality when we are dealing with our patients. And for me, being able to um, work in that spirit of um, collaboration, but also work in that spirit of culturally inclusive care, um, for me, has shown the greatest outcomes in terms of being able to work better with my patients, but also being able to receive their buy-in in regards to how they would like their care to be delivered. In expanding that just a little bit, what are some of the biggest concerns that you hear uh, from your patients? And how do you kind of work with those biggest concerns so for me as a provider, I think some of the biggest concerns that I typically hear from patients is simply rooted in lack of understanding or lack of education in regards to their symptoms and in regards to the treatment options that they have available. Um, I think there's, you know, with the way that the internet is, is now um, such a strong pillar in our society, um, there's a lot of really good information on there, but unfortunately, there's a lot of um, really bad information on there as well, right? There's a lot of misinformation and disinformation, and there's a lot of anecdotal accounts that patients often read that makes them think one way or another when it comes to their treatment. So my number one thing that I try my best to do is, is to, number one, um, allay their fears, uh, through my understanding of evidence-based practice and, and really explain to them um, the facts of these medications as well as the treatment options that are available to them. I think once I am able to explain it in a way that they can better understand and, and better digest, um, it helps allay some of those concerns because, again, a lot of the concerns is deeply rooted in just not really having the knowledge or their understanding of what they can do to help them better manage their symptoms. But once they have that education and once they're able to better understand what their treatment options are. It helps them regain a sense of control over the situation. And I think for me personally as a provider, um, being able to empower them and being able to help them regain a sense of control um, is quite crucial in terms of their ability to recover. I, I kind of like to expand upon that just a little bit. And so for adults um, that you are treating, who you think may benefit from being on a long-acting injectable. 
Uh, how do you approach those conversations specifically um, with your patients? So in regards to approaching these conversations when it comes to adults who may benefit from being on a long-acting injectable, the number one thing that I always want to ask is making sure that me and my patient are on the same page in regards to the type of treatment that they would like to receive, right? Oftentimes, there are patients who don't want any medications. They just want someone to talk to, um, while there are patients who are specifically looking for medication options. So being able to ask those meaningful questions, being able to actually understand what exactly my patient is looking for um, is the first step. And once I know that we're on the same page and, for example, they are interested in seeking out medications or long-acting medications, then we can approach those conversations together. So in terms of, again, having those conversations um, and in, in terms of considering whether or not they'd be a good candidate for long-acting injectables, um, I really want to make sure that uh, there are certain considerations that the patient do, uh, does meet. So number one I like to figure out is, number one, are they having a hard time adhering to their medication? Right? Do they have a history of non-adherence when it comes to their medications? Are their symptoms severe? Or do they have comorbid substance use, cognitive impairments that may prevent them from taking their medications on a more consistent basis? And do they have any poor insight in regards to that? Once I've identified that they do meet multiple um, of these considerations, then I can go ahead and talk about the advantages of being on a long-acting injectable, such as uh, they don't have to remember to take the medications every day, right? But on the flip side to that, there are also potential disadvantages that we also have to consider, right? So um, it's important for me, especially as a provider, to explain um, the both advantages and disadvantages of, advantages of long-acting injectables. But once I feel like they have uh, both sides of the coin, um, it does enable and empower the patients to make an informed decision for themselves and what works better for them. Thank you so much for talking about some of these approaches and ideas that you have as far as treatment is concerned, Dr. Yamas. I wanted to ask you, from your perspective as a clinician, what is uh, considered a successful outcome for your patient as well as yourself? In, in my perspective as a clinician, what a successful outcome looks like on my end is when I'm able to see my patients thrive and not just simply survive. What I mean by that is when I see my patients be able to live a meaningful life without feeling inundated or burdened by their symptoms, for me, is a, is a positive outcome, right? Because at the end of the day, it's my job as a provider to make them feel empowered and to also make them feel that their symptoms or their diagnosis doesn't define who they are as a person. So with the right treatment plan in place and with their symptoms managed, I've definitely seen a lot of my patients um, to be able to live long and prosperous lives with little to no complications. And that is obviously in due part of their ability to not only stay adherent to their medications, um, but to also make sure that they are continuing their healthy lifestyle habits as well, right? So being able to encourage them and to be able to see them uh, be able to take control of their lives again, um, and to be able to see them be able to function in high-functioning roles and, and positions, that to me is a successful outcome, and that to me is one of my greatest joys working as a provider. Thank you so much. I love that idea of thriving, not just surviving. It's so important. I really would like to thank Dr. Yamas today for his comments and giving us some really rich ideas. My name is Dr. Barbara Jones-Warren. This podcast 
is being sponsored by Janssen Pharmaceuticals, and Dr. Yamas was paid uh, honorarium for his work on this session. Thank you so much uh, for listening to us today and for your time. Bye-bye. This recording was approved under CP 366-290-V1.